Welcome to Raising Rochester. I'm Pete Nabosny. Raising Rochester is brought to you by the Children's Agenda and focuses on the key issues affecting children and families in Rochester and New York State. My guest today is Larry Marks. Larry is the president and CEO of the Children's Agenda, my boss, and has led our organization for the past decade. He is a passionate advocate for social justice and seeks to create a fairer, more just society for all, especially children. Our conversation today focuses on findings from the recent poll of Monroe County parents that the Children's Agenda commissioned, and we also discuss the public policy implications of that poll. All right, Larry Marks, welcome to Raising Rochester. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to talking all about um, the recent poll that the Children's Agenda commissioned and released um, about sort of the experiences of families in Monroe County. But before we dive into all that, um, you are here in charge of the Children's Agenda. You're my boss for the um, the last, uh, I guess I've worked here for almost five years now, um, but you've been in this position for about 10 years. Um, so I just wanted to give our audience a little uh, perspective on your background, kind of how you came to to the place where you are leading this organization and um, and sort of, yeah, your, your general path in life. So um, I know the answer to this, but our audience may not. Where did you... Uh, where did you grow up, um, and how did you end up in um, in this line of work and in Rochester specifically? Well, I grew up in Champaign-Urbana in central Illinois. My mother and father were professors at the University of Illinois, and uh, so, yeah, that's where I grew up. All right, and then um, you got involved in activism, um, sort of social justice-type issues um, at, a, at a fairly young age, right? Um, how did you sort of, what, what drew you to this this sort of perspective on the world and, and line of um, not just work, but um, sort of your passion in life for this kind of work? Yeah, I grew up in a family uh, devoted to social and economic justice. So when my dad was 16 years old, he was held hostage by the Gestapo in Frankfurt, Germany, where he grew up on Kristallnacht because my grandfather, his dad, was in hiding. They owned a small furniture store, and uh, they decided to hold my 16-year-old dad hostage so that my grandfather would give himself up, which he did, and he was sent to Buchenwald. In fact, we're taking my family to Germany this year, and it'll be the first time that I've ever visited that concentration camp. But that uh, my dad went to the same university, uh, same same high school as Anne Frank. Wow. Um, and uh, was also part of a socialist youth group and used to get into fistfights with Hitler Youth uh, <laughs> as a teenager. And uh, when he moved to the States, he uh, devoted himself to economic and social justice. Um, that's how he met my mom. They were involved in various early 1940s civil rights struggles like supporting the Scottsboro Boys who were wrongly accused of raping a white woman um, and uh, supporting Paul Robeson, who was being censored, a famous yeah. actor and singer at the time. So I grew up in that sort of context of both the Holocaust as a backdrop and also my family's commitments to civil rights. So very early on, uh, as a student at the University of Illinois, what a shock that I went to that uh, university. I was active on the ERA and on uh, Central American issues 
And when I graduated, I moved to Chicago and very quickly got involved in the Harold Washington for mayor okay. uh, race and uh, have been devoted to those issues all my life. So how did you end up in, uh, what brought you to Rochester, I guess? Well, the interesting thing for somebody who's director of the children's agenda was my kids. Yeah. Um, my uh, oldest was, I think, six, and my youngest was four, and we were really having problems with the school that they were in and our childcare arrangements. We had a very rich assortment of friends in Milwaukee uh, where I met my wife and we started our family, but we um, were really struggling with childcare. And so my family is kind of scattered to the winds, but uh, Deb's family is from Rochester, New York, and we decided that really to make our lives work, we should move to Rochester. So we did, and that's where um, my grand, my, their grandparents, my mother and father-in-law yep. would meet the kids off the bus and help give us the kind of slack that we were missing in our lives in, in Milwaukee. Yeah, great, and, um, and so again, I've, as I've noted, you've been Head of the Children's Agenda for for ten of our eighteen years, nineteen years now. We're, we're working on eighteen, eighteen yeah. years. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, and we've really seen the organization grow um, over your time in that position. So, one of the things you just sort of mentioned that maybe is a good segue is sort of the slack that um, moving to Rochester kind of provided you and your family through having that support from your from your in laws. Um, so. Our organization recently, with with funding from the ESL Charitable Foundation, commissioned a poll of um, Monroe County parents and tried to find out sort of what they're experiencing, kind of where their stressors are, what public policy positions they support or oppose or or whatnot. Um, but but why? Before we get into some of the specific poll results, um, why did we try to get funding for um, a, a kind of a comprehensive poll of, of parents in this community? Well. Uh, as I said recently on WXXI's Connections, parents really are the heroes of the children's agenda. They are the people who heroically are raising the next generation who are struggling as uh, I had a minor experience with that struggle uh, back in my Milwaukee days. And um, so we really want them to weigh in on the issues that we're involved in. So we launched this poll largely to amplify parent voice and to broaden the representation. The way that most parents weigh in on, or, or the way that parent input is gathered mostly by government or volunteer associations is people hold a meeting and you expect people to arrive at the appointed time on the appointed place and speak on the appointed topic. And uh, only a certain number of parents, obviously, lives uh, allow them to do that, especially those who have slack in their lives, yeah. like we got in Rochester. So we wanted to make sure that we were hearing um, a scientifically valid representative sample of parent opinion throughout Monroe County, which is how the organization was founded, is to represent the children in Monroe County, especially the most vulnerable. So we designed a poll that was going to be representative of exactly Monroe County demographics. 
and that way we could hear from those parents who aren't heard from typically through meetings and input sessions that that government would have so that was reason number one reason number two was we're part of rock the future the pre-k through 12 education initiative that seeks to improve outcomes for children cradle to career and we they have a wildly important goal of engaging some 6,000 parents uh, to hear from them and we wanted to contribute to this goal and frankly the 400 parents that we sampled within plus or minus five percent of Monroe County are representative of tens of thousands of parents yeah. in the county and the third reason why we wanted to do this poll is that we wanted to influence policymakers. We wanted to hear from parents about the barriers uh, that are affecting their lives, and we wanted to know what solutions they support, uh, and we wanted to use that data to influence people who are accountable to an electorate to say these are the kinds of changes that parents of children in Monroe County, 18 and younger, are demanding. Yeah, that's all really interesting. And I think the, you know, particularly the first point, um, I think about it a lot in terms of some of the work that we do. Um, you know, the, the Facebook comment section of to a various news article is not representative of, of the perspectives of people in this community. Um, you know, the it certainly captures a certain perspective of certain people, um, uh, which is sometimes horrifying. But, but, you know, the people who come to board meetings or um, public hearings, you know, they ha- that's that's a group of highly engaged activist parents, which are it's incredibly important um, for those people to do that work, and that's work that the Children's Agenda supports a lot. But I, yeah, I often wonder kind of what the just the the average person who isn't hyper plugged into like what's happening in um, you know this this school board meeting or the city council meeting, how they feel about some of these issues that there's a lot of passion in that meeting for. Is that reflective of the broader public, or is it um, is it capturing a you know a sliver of the public and and yeah, the, I mean, the poll results, which we'll get into in a minute, are um, really helpful at, at, I think, clarifying some of those perspectives um, that of, of how, you know, a majority of parents feel about this issue or that issue. And it, I think it helps ground us in, in some of the work that we do. Absolutely. Um, again, I, I think that um, there is a need to have representative samples of parent opinion and not just the loudest voices or those voices who are most able to show up yeah. at a meeting um, to respond to a Facebook post. Yeah. Uh, we want to make sure that we're hearing from all parents. Yeah. Great. So let's let's dive into it a little bit. Um, so you said we, we surveyed 400 Monroe County parents um, about a, a wide range of issues. What um, we can get into some specifics, but what was what's the big takeaway from from that poll? What what are the headline um, findings from that poll? Well, the first the headline is that seventy one percent of parents in Monroe County are saying that it's either a crisis or a major problem in their lives to balance the work and their taking care of children. And that is a heart-stopping number, that uh, parents would use the term crisis. Uh, Now, of course, this takes place during our hopefully waning hours of the pandemic, but um, this was in February, and so it's still very current. And that number was startling to me. Yeah, and I mean, I think it makes sense when you think about it. You know, as a parent of young children, it's it's been 
quite stressful at times over the past several years for me. And I, you know, I work for an organization that has a lot of flexibility around some of the, the things we've experienced in the pandemic. But it's both somewhat clear that all the factors of the pandemic of why they would say that, but then, but then it's also still really sort of shocking because that it would seem to me that 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 crisis that people are reporting that's just a that's an enormous amount of added stress on that family and some families have more resources to handle that than others um did we see any difference between various like groups in the community around that or was that pretty broadly shared between whether it's different racial groups or i know we sort of tried to um really look at the difference between city parents and and suburban parents were there any differences that that are notable in terms of that that particular you know levels of stress no uh, that that was really fascinating on that particular data point uh seven out of ten parents whether it's black and brown parents whether it's city parents whether it's suburban parents they're all reporting these crisis acute levels of stress and to me uh that's pretty shocking so uh we we uh for better or worse, expect people who are faced with uh, social and systemic barriers like racism and poverty to report something like that. But the fact that it's so widespread shows that our policymakers really aren't responding to the level of acute crisis that they need. If they are fooling themselves that this is only a small portion of a constituency, they're dead wrong. I know we touched on some other issues um, in terms of like affordability and how people um, for various things um, and then how people a few different issues. But I'm sort of curious. Um, we looked at sort of sort of economic impacts of the of the pandemic as well. I mean, sort of, you know, there have been a lot of supports for families over the course of the pandemic, whether it was the checks that people got in the mail or enhanced unemployment or expansion of um, the SNAP program and, and other things. But um but I'll, I'll let you lead. I mean, it did seem like the, the pandemic still had a, um, to state the obvious, a, a negative effect on a lot of households and, and their sort of position. So what were some of the findings around sort of, um, I guess, financial strain for, for families? Yeah, well, what really shows up in the poll is the acute sense of pocketbook issues and the kitchen table issues that parents are worried about when they're helping their kids with their homework or making sure they're putting a meal on the table or going through their bills, those kitchen table issues are largely pocketbook issues. So it's affordability of childcare, it's affordability of basic necessities of life, housing and food and clothes and uh, all the things that uh, families put into raising the next generation. So that was pretty striking. The other thing that was so striking to me of the poll was uh, that five out of 10 parents are reporting mental health issues with their kids. And the most recent number we have is from the Greater Rochester Health Foundation from 2018 that estimated somewhere of one out of five children um, in Monroe County probably were facing some kind of mental health issue. But that has gone to five out of 10, and in the city, even higher. Six out of 10 parents are saying that there are, their children or their teens are facing mental health issues. That is really startling, and uh, we know that the supply of supports, whether it's in 
public schools or whether it's in our healthcare system is woefully inadequate. There yeah. are long waiting lists to receive support for uh, mental health assistance for children and youth, um, whether it's inpatient or outpatient. Uh, and we just have a crisis of shortage of uh, supply in answering that. Again, that's something that parents are saying policymakers really need to address right away. Yeah, and that's something that our organization has really tried to to sort of pivot towards over the prior to this poll, but over the, the last year, right? I mean, I think we organization have always been concerned about the you know, the mental well-being of, of of children, but it I think this poll really drives home the kind of things that people are witnessing in the community, experiencing in schools, um, experiencing their own families, right? That um, that the some of the consequences of some of the isolation kids being home from um, from school for a while, just disruption has really resulted in a crisis level of mental health challenges. And it's tough because, as you said, it's, you know, we, we can't just pull mental health counselors off a tree. I mean, you know, right. it's, it's, it's a real challenge, but it's something that we need, as you said, you know, policymakers to, to start working towards solutions because anything is going to take time. It has taken time. And, and yet the the problem is, is quite severe right now, and we'll probably continue that way for, for some period of time at least, right? Yeah, we recently held a meeting um, of parents that uh, our parent advocacy coordinator, Carmen Torres, organized with school board commissioners in the Rochester City School District to talk about the need for increased investments of the $300 million in federal COVID relief money the district has received to go to mental health supports. Um, and one of the women who's a godmother to a 10-year-old child um, was telling, again, this just heart-stopping story about her godson, who was nine at the time last year, who their family took in, um, who was asked, what do you look forward to next year? What is uh uh, what do you want to see in your life? And he wrote, I just want to die, 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 she said. Um, so you can't help but hear something like that yeah. and think that we are so under-responding to the level of crisis, particularly in the city, particularly for those most vulnerable black and brown kids in the Rochester City School District. We have to res uh, up our game and increase the number of counselors and social workers and mental health assistants uh, for those families and those kids. Yeah, and that's one of the frustrating things I think about some government response over the course of the pandemic. I think that in certain areas, government has responded quickly um, and you know freed up resources, or you know certainly there have been some large aid packages from um, the federal government. But at the same time, it, it it seems like it's difficult for sort of some of these bureaucracies to to move quickly. You know, they get funding from the federal government, and you know, they, there's a crisis, there's an emergency. It's you know, we're being flooded with all these needs, um, and they haven't always been as, as as quick moving, I think, as as we would like them to be. Um, obviously, we have our our particular perspective on how these funds should be used and, and what what policy changes should should take place, but you know, they do need to have a process where they engage in the whole community, but but sort of not responding quickly, not sort of recognizing the, the level of crisis has been, a, you know, I think a, a 
a frustration of mine that we're going to take a six month period to figure out what to do with some of this money or a year period, um, you know, is, uh, it just seems not re responsive to the, to the reality, you know, in the community sometimes. Yeah. Well, and as we know, government is incredibly reactive. Yeah. Uh, it's not at all proactive. So throughout the 18 years history of the children's agenda, we have focused on what we have uh, called a crisis in childcare, yeah. and have worked to increase investments, make it more affordable, high quality, and uh, more universal for all families. And it's only now, this year, um, after we've seen the enormous consequences of a pandemic that took millions of parents, largely women, out of the workforce to care for kids when there was remote schooling or when childcare facilities were closing, that uh, government has decided to finally uh, react to what uh, every family has known, what my family knew in Milwaukee, yeah. uh, has been a crisis for years, that we don't have a system that supports families both working and taking care of their children. Yeah, let's let's stick on that for a little bit because there were some questions um, in the poll about about child care, um, you know, specifically. So, what what were the perspectives of um, of Monroe County families around um, around whether it's the affordability of child care or the the accessibility of, of child care? What did we um, what did we find in this poll? Uh, well, the, the first uh, fact that really stood out is just how incredibly expensive it is and that families, um, seven out of ten families who seek either home-based child care in family settings or uh, child care centers, seven out of ten parents say that's way too expensive for them. I was shocked to find out, though, that other situations for child care also were considered way too expensive. 54% uh, say hiring a babysitter or family member, friend or neighbor is way too expensive. 49% are saying that after school or extended daycare programs is uh, really not affordable. And again, those, those numbers are reported across the board, suburban or urban, uh, black and brown or white. Uh, male or female parents are all reporting just how unaffordable childcare is. Yeah, and hopefully we see in, uh, we're recording this right at the end of March here. Um, I'm not sure when it's going to go up and people are going to listen to it. So news may have changed, but at, at, as of kind of the point of recording, the, the state, um, the state assembly and state senate have pledged really significant new investments in childcare and their proposed budgets. Um, Governor Hochul proposed a pretty modest uh, expansion of child care assistance for families in her executive budget. What we've heard since then is that they are open to much deeper investments in, in um, helping families afford child care, particularly, uh, you know, there's a real focus on, on low-income families who are priced out of the sort of formal child care market uh, right now. But, I mean, this, this poll confirms to me that, that, and I think to you as well, that Childcare across the board, unless you are really affluent, can be a um, you know on top of a mortgage or rent payments or car payments or whatever else can really be a a tremendous burden on on families, particularly families with with the young children, right? 
Yeah, the Economic Policy Institute recently said that the um, average cost of infant care in New York State is over $15,000 a year. So again, that uh, rivals or exceeds most mortgage payments, certainly SUNY college, university tuition, and uh, that's 22% of the state's uh, median income. Who can afford that yeah. just on kids? It's, it's outrageous. And I served, uh, I was an appointee uh, by the governor to the New York State Child Care Availability Task Force pre-pandemic when the legislature passed a law saying we really have to respond and create some kind of new child care system. Uh, so from 2018 through the pandemic uh, of 2020, I served. It felt like a life sentence sometimes, <laughs> shuttling back and forth to Albany on that uh, commission. Uh, and we came up with some recommendations. Uh, but at the heart of the recommendations, what's clear is we have to make a massive uh, investment in child care. What the evidence shows is not only can we afford that, it pays for itself. Because we've had millions of women take themselves out of the workforce. And in Quebec and Canada, when they made child care universal and affordable, over 10 years, they found a 16% increase in the number of women who had been out of the workforce entering the workforce. And that margin alone the taxes, the payroll taxes on that margin, the income taxes, that was enough to pay for universal child care. So this this argument that we somehow can't afford this upfront investment is completely wrong because the yield, uh, just on sheer economic terms, is going to pay for itself. But of course, it's a good in itself, and yeah. we can't just look at it in economic terms, but it improves children's health or education long term. Uh, it, it means that they're going to be more successful adults lifelong. And so uh, not only does it reduce the stress of families today uh, and make it more possible to have economic development and growth, but it's something that uh, allows the next generation to be healthier, better educated, and happier. Yeah, well said. <laughs> I agree with all that. Uh, obviously, I've been um, working, you know, quite a bit on, on the child care issue within, you know, my work at the Children's Agenda, and it, it can be frustrating sometimes that you can see all this. You know, we see it. We've seen it for a while that this is such a straightforward argument for massive public investment to grow the economy to help kids thrive. Um, and that hasn't always been, you know, the perspective of the, you know, the policymakers that we've encountered. And, and you know, I'm hopeful that, that this year is, is really the year that changes in, in New York State. And we'll have to build on that in future years. But um, getting those investments, showing how it is starting to drive more, you know, workforce participation and, and school readiness and all sorts of other, th- you know, positive benefits for kids, you know, hopefully builds a virtuous cycle, right, where we can continue those investments until we get to to something we can call universal, right? Yeah. Um, so let's let's sort of pivot a little bit to education. Um, that was an area we had a lot of questions about um, as well, and has been, um, you know, most parents of of, of children under eighteen are, are parents of, of children in the in the school system, uh, and so uh, that's a that's a lot of kids. It's about hundred thousand kids in, in the county are um, you know enrolled in K twelve school. Um, 
what did we find, you know, when we asked, I know we asked a range of different questions, both on kind of the personal experiences and then some of their, their perspectives on, on some policy issues. What did we find from, you know, what did parents report their, the experiences of their children over the course of the pandemic or? Yeah, five out of 10, half of all parents are reporting that their children are falling behind academically as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, wow. And that's 56% of parents in the city of Rochester, 52% of parents in the suburbs are reporting that. The Children's Agenda's mission, of course, is to uh, advance uh, effective policies and evidence-based solutions that improve the health, education, and success of our, of our children. And we say especially those children who are most vulnerable because of poverty, racism, health inequities, and trauma. So another number that really struck us is that seven out of 10 parents of children with a developmental delay or a disability are, of course, reporting that their children have fallen behind academically as well. It's just a staggering number, seven out of 10. And we've had children who have needs for early intervention or preschool special education services that are getting those services online and remotely. That does work for some kids, but not for all kids. And as a result of the pandemic, uh, we've seen developmental delays extend into later years. And that means uh, that can have just lifelong consequences for the children and, and that family. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunately whenever something bad to state the obvious happens like this worldwide pandemic that we've been embroiled in for several years it, it always seems like the most the most vulnerable children um uh the most vulnerable families they they always experience the most kind of acute consequences of that of that traumatic event or you know whenever there's when there's a recession when there's you know a natural disaster when there's when when systems fail it's the the children and families who are most vulnerable, whether it's because of their economic circumstances, um, whether it's because of, of racist systems in our society, or whether it's um, because that child has special needs or whatever else, you know, they, they bear the brunt of, of, of these, you know, failures. Sometimes they're, you know, act of God kind of things, and sometimes it's because of public systems failing, but, but either way, it's, it's those kids who, who seem to be harmed the most, right? Yeah, I'm a fan of, there's an academic named John Powell who's at Berkeley um, who uh, developed this concept of targeted universalism. Yeah. And the idea behind it is that we need public, po- there's, there's always been a tension about public policies that, for instance, if they're means tested to those families who are poorest, that then they tend to lack support in the broader public because it doesn't benefit them. But then if there are policies that are universally implied um, that if they're not specifically targeted to the most in need and the most vulnerable, that they don't necessarily benefit the most yeah. in need and the most vulnerable. So what we really need are public policies that, are, that have uh, what he calls targeted universalism. And what I'm proud to say is that what it's looking like in the childcare work, for instance, is that we are focusing on the racial inequities built into our childcare system. We're focusing on those areas that are known as childcare deserts that 64% of families in New York State seem to live in where there isn't uh, within a, a 
close distance of their home any child care availability and we're also focusing on the lowest income uh, families who uh, right now child care is out of reach because of its lack of affordability and uh, I should say at least high quality child care yeah. but people stitch together whatever situations they can to take care of their kids and provide for their families and as, as we're seeing this poll, that is a very shaky situation for most parents. Yeah. We also sort of poll tested some, some solutions, potential solutions to some of these issues that we've, we've raised and that parents, um, I think, broadly confirmed are, are real um, significant challenges in the community. So what were some of those potential policies that we, um, we surveyed? And, and, you know, if you could, if there was a difference between um, – City of Rochester parents and suburban parents. Um, that would be kind of, I think, also interesting to talk about. Um, yeah, well, one number that's just a whopping number, you never see this in public policy support on anything, was 90% of parents in Monroe County support increased tax credits for families with very young children. So 90%. So it, at that point, level of support. It doesn't matter, city, suburban. Yeah. It's just an overwhelming need. And we did see with the uh, expansion last year of the imp- of the uh, child tax credit at the federal level that some 3.7 million families were lifted out of poverty nationally, some 224,000 families in the state of New York, and according to Congressman Morelli, 10,000 families in the city of Rochester. So, of course, just a little cash uh, in families' pockets is an elegant way of reducing stress in people's lives, of maintaining housing stability, maintaining uh, food on the table for very young kids. The Education Trust New York did a study, a, a poll themselves, that found at the height of the pandemic from March to July 2020, that uh, one out of every three families of children with ages four and under were skipping a meal during that time. That is a Great Depression-level startling, heart-stopping numbers. And with the expanded child tax credit, as you've pointed out, Pete, it's such an elegant solution to dealing with a a number of needs since one size does not fit all for families but getting money into the pockets of families with kids they can apply it to where it's needed most whether it's a you know used car to get to a job or whether it's food or uh, paying rent and that uh, had an enormous impact particularly on the lowest income families of color in our community and around the state So we've been fighting for not only the continuation of that expansion, which ended January 15th, that's when the last check showed up for um, families uh, with children at the federal level. Uh, It's it's a current fight uh, that Senator Jeremy Cooney is helping to lead on expanding the Empire State Child Credit, which is nowhere near as robust as a federal tax credit, but would really help, especially the lowest income families, if we could increase that and if we could apply it to children under four, which crazily enough, our state does not include right now in that in that Empire State Child Credit. Yeah, and that's when I talk to people about it, um, 
completely shocking, shocking, and I think shows sometimes the um, just the inattention to, to some of these systems and, and policies that, for whatever reason, and, and I think the reason is really lost to, to history at this point. As you noted, children under four don't receive the um, the you know modest Empire State Child Credit um, that that is currently in effect for um, you know kids four to seventeen, and and all sorts of research um, shows that. Um, young children are most likely the most likely group of any group age group in our um, in our state and in the United States as a whole to be in poverty, um, and they're you know tragically also the the group that's most affected by the negative consequences of poverty. And so, to have a tax credit that excludes young children is the opposite of of any kind of sense that you'd make. So um, hopefully we see something in the budget this year. I know Senator Cooney's really been championing it and um, along with Assemblymember Hebesey uh, in the Assembly. Um, and, you know, if we don't see it this year, we've got to see it next year because uh, we can't leave that that really flawed um, policy in place for, for much longer. We also surveyed parents about um, certain like school issues and, and policies um, as well. What, what were some of the, the things that we asked uh, Monroe County parents about um, relative to to yeah, school-based policies, I guess. Yeah, the, the one of the most important is parents are demanding that we respond to the mental health crisis in their families, and so um, they are uh, by large numbers in favor of increased supports of social workers and counselors and mental health supports. Uh, that's particularly true in the city of Rochester. Particularly true for Black and Brown parents. Uh, where uh, Children's Agenda has been working with uh, who we call VIPs, very in invested parents, a group that led a march from City Hall to the school district last October and has been relentlessly meeting with school board commissioners uh, demanding a $40 million investment of that $300 million federal COVID relief money be spent on increased mental health supports, including restorative practices, including help zones in schools, as well as uh, increased access to counselors and social workers and mental health uh, professionals. Great. And we also asked about um, one of the issues the Children's Agenda has been focused on um, at, a, at a local level and then at a state level, and our, our colleague Eamon Scanlon has really been driving this issue, is around um, banning suspension of, of young children. Um, uh, kindergarten through third grade. Um, how did how did families in uh, Monroe County uh, think about about that policy uh, prohibiting um, suspension of kindergartners through third graders? Yeah, I was. Uh, th this was another number that I was really happy to see and didn't expect it to be this high. But sixty one percent of parents support eliminating or reducing the use of suspensions in grades kindergarten through third grade. Now, really, what kind of medieval society <laughs> takes kids out of a classroom uh, and suspends kindergartners, five and six-year-olds, or seven and eight-year-olds? That really is something out of the Middle Ages, and uh, I'm happy to see 61% of parents in the county support it. Now, that falls when you're talking to male parents who 
unfortunately, it looks like we live up to the disciplinarian role yeah. in, in the world. But it really rises high when you look at the city of Rochester. So not surprisingly, the racial inequity of those suspensions falls he- most heavily on black and brown kids. It's been proven time and again that teachers and administrators tend to view the beha- uh, tend to be white and tend to view the behaviors of particularly black boys as being suspension worthy as opposed to uh, a normal kind of behavior of acting out that you need to deal with in other ways. So in the city of Rochester, 73% of parents support banning uh, suspensions of those little kids from kindergarten through third grade. And it's it's similar uh, when you do the racial breakdown, too, that uh, it's disproportionately supported by black and brown parents versus white parents and, and women as well. Yeah, we also saw some, um, I think, encouraging data around parents supporting the increased diversity in their schools, um, uh, both uh, sort of the st- at, the, at a student level and then at a, at, a, at a teacher and staff level. What were some of those, um, those findings? Yeah, that struck me as well. And uh, as somebody who just recently listened to our own local DNC reporter and author, Justin Murphy, talk about his new book that's out, Your Children Are Greatly in Danger, about the history of segregation in the city of Rochester, I was really happy to see that countywide, 44% of parents say that teacher and staff diversity is very important, uh, or, uh, yeah, that's the very important number, not just somewhat important. Um, and uh, that, that goes up for parents of color, uh, 58% of parents of color saying increasing teacher and staff diversity is incredibly important. And that also holds true for student diversity, where large majorities of parents, and again, particularly in the city, support increasing the diversity of students. I think there is some, uh, you know, as, as I, I learn when I go through this, this book of Justin Murphy's, um, there, there is uh, a well-founded belief, particularly of black parents, that um, integration uh, was a way of uh, making sure that their families suffered the greatest brunt of trying to make uh, education more equal across yeah. the board. And white parents out of white supremacy have incredibly, you know, even violently resisted even that integration where the the brunt falls on uh, families of color uh, in the way that it's been done in the past. So there's got to be a, a, a different way of uh, creating more equal educational opportunities and uh, meeting parents' uh, demands as seen in this poll for increased student, faculty, and staff diversity where uh, the burden of integration is equally shared and well said all right so we're going to wrap up uh shortly um but was there any uh, in we may have already touched on it but were there any findings in the poll that were particularly surprising to you or especially surprising to you either from a 
uh, maybe we can do both from a positive perspective, uh, kind of encouraging, um, and you may have already touched on it, um, or anything that was sort of disappointing um, in terms of, of how a majority or, or, or a significant minority of Monroe County parents feel about a particular issue. Was there anything in there that really jumped out at you as, as sort of challenging um, your assumptions about sort of the, the public opinion? I, I was looking for that, and, you know, we are, we are a, a learning organization just as we're all learning human beings. Um, and so I didn't find anything surprising in what we know, but I did find a lot of questions that, oh, I wish we had asked that or thought yeah. of this. So um, at some very basic levels, we want to do what's called in polling science oversampling more city residents and more black and brown parents so that we can uh, do, have a little bit more nuanced view than we were able to do in this last poll. We did a poll that's representative of the county as a whole that's incredibly useful for our advocacy at a state level and at a county level. We have enough data to break it down by city residents and talk about intelligently about what parents want out of the city school district or city council as well. But we want to ask, uh, we want to oversample city residents and more black and brown parents. And what I mean by that is that just so people understand, uh, we're understanding just how little people understand about polling, that will require thousands of more phone calls to reach and thousands of more hours of callers time and more expense in order to make sure that we're successfully understanding a nuanced point of view of uh, city parents and black and brown parents uh, not just as a subset but uh, but on their own so that's that's incredibly important for us to do in the next poll uh, and and thanks to the ESL Charitable Foundation, which is helping to fund our work on this, we think we'll have enough money to cover that. Yeah, um, and that'll be that'll be great. So it's some of the stuff that we didn't ask and that we don't know that I I wonder if the surprises lurk in there. Um, but what we found out through this poll and what we know from it wasn't that much of a surprise. There are these high water marks of mental health issues and. Uh, parents who feel their students are falling behind academically and the, the acute level of stress, those were startling in terms of how high they were, yeah. but not a surprise to people who follow these issues like the children's agenda. Yeah, so you um, I mentioned right there that we're planning to do another one of these. In fact, we're planning to do several more of, of these polls. What's sort of going to be the, what can our audience expect in terms of the cadence of these of these polls and um, and beyond the oversampling of city residents, do we? Um, what do you think we're going to tackle? Um, you know, in, in upcoming versions of this poll. Yeah, I well, so our plan is two a year for at least the next three years. My hope is that this will be a continuing uh, arrow in our quiver uh, that we will bring to bear on advocacy for policy changes for children and youth. And the cadence is going to be uh, the winter and fall. So our next one will be sometime in September as uh, children go back to school and as the county starts 
to formulate its concrete plans for its uh, budget. We would like to have parent opinion weigh in at that at that moment in time. So we'll we'll keep this up to a year, uh, beginning again uh, at the beginning of the new year in the winter, to which will be aimed at state policymakers, and then more at local level policymakers in the fall. Um, what we hope to ask more of is dig into some of these questions about pocketbook issues uh, and what would really help in the way of um, policy solutions to dig in more to um, what people would want to see in a adequate response from their schools to the mental health crisis uh, and um, what people would see as alternatives to suspensions for little kids five through eight years old. Yeah. Those are more of the questions that we really want to dig in as well as sort of expand the demographic reach of the poll. Gotcha. Well, yeah, well, stay tuned for findings of that of that next poll, which, again, we're only about five months away from. So believe it or not, fall is, is coming soon, even if uh, spring is not really here as of the moment we're recording this. Um, well, I'm, I'm very aware we've got <laughs> two college tuitions coming up this yeah, fall for the first there's, time. So. There's an affordability issue, right? <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, yeah, thanks so much for, for recording this with me, Larry. It was fun, and I'm glad we were able to touch on all these important topics. Thanks so much, Pete. Always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining me today on Raising Rochester. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and family, including on social media. And feel free to send feedback or show ideas to me at pete at thechildrensagenda.org. Until next time, on behalf of The Children's Agenda, I'm Pete Bosney.